So we've been working through these themes of Advent as we have this series, A Weary World Rejoices, just in the midst of the chaos of the world that we live in, stopping to think and what brings, hopefully, as we think on these words and these themes, brings this rejoicing inside of us. Even though we may be weary from all that's taking place in our life, we can stop, we can reflect, we can think, and it spurs rejoicing in us. Now, while I was kind of thinking through and planning for this series, I had really one concern, all right? And that concern was clarity. Because here's, here's kind of the first year that I wrestled with Advent. Um, not something I grew up par- like practicing or participating in. Um, didn't really know. I, didn't, I hadn't even heard the word Advent until probably my mid-20s when we started going to a church that started practicing Advent. And so it was like, man, what is going on? You have all these words, you have all these themes. I mean, you have all this history. Supposedly, Advent started as early as 400 BC in the life of the church. And so you have these purple candles that people are lighting, and you have all this stuff that you're supposed to think on and reflect on. I mean, before I came to this church, Christmas was just two things. It was presents and it was Jesus, right? And then you have Advent and you have all these things to think on. And so my head was just kind of swirling. You know the scene from The Office whenever uh, Oscar walks in and he brings the budget before Michael Scott and he's like, hey, this is our budget surplus. And he's trying to explain it to Michael Scott and all the things and intricacies that goes on in this the budget surplus. And what does Michael Scott says? He says, all right, now imagine that I'm five and explain it to me like I'm five. That's kind of what I felt like the first year that I practiced Advent because it just felt a little overwhelming, all right? And hey, if that's you, like I feel you, right? Like if this is your first year practicing Advent, I feel you. But look, the more that you practice this, hopefully the more you see the beauty in this Advent season. But if that is you, if you're kind of your head swirling a little bit, I do find that the passage that we're looking at tonight is really clarifying. It's really clarifying. In tonight's passage, we get two lines that basically sum up the whole of Advent and Christmas. So let me explain kind of like where we are and what's going on in this scene before we jump into these two lines, all right? So what, here's, what, here's where we're at. Jesus has already been born. He's here. Verses one through seven, that's the birth narrative of Jesus, where Mary and Joseph, they travel to Bethlehem. They're in Bethlehem. They can't find the place to stay. And so as she's there, it's baby time, right? Like she's pregnant. She's ready to go. They can't find a place. And so where do they go? They go to a manger. And that very night, an angel appears to a group of shepherds that are in a field, all right? Now, this is kind of a head scratcher. Is a little bit of a head scratcher because these are some of the last people that you would expect an angel to appear to, all right? So a shepherd, it's the job that you would give to a child. If you remember King David, he's a shepherd. It's because it's not a complicated job. Like you're basically there to just watch a bunch of dumb animals that are in like this big pen. Like that's what you do. It's also you are considered unclean if you did the shepherding job. I mean, you're, think about it. Seven days a week, you don't get a day off if you're a shepherd. Seven days a week, you're around animals. If you meet a group of shepherds, you smell them before you see them whenever they come along. This is an unclean group. Not only this, but their testimony, even if you, they saw something, some type of act, some type of felony, if they saw this happen in society and it was taken to court, you couldn't even use the testimony of a shepherd. That's how low in society this group was. But nevertheless, 
And the angel comes and he appears to a group of shepherds that are in the field. And the angel gives them a sign that the Messiah of the world has been born. And so as this angel is communicating this, after they hear this news, what, do they, what happens after the angel leaves? And they look at each other and it's like, we got to go to Bethlehem. We gotta go check out and see if what has been reported to us is true. And so they've traveled to Bethlehem and as they travel to Bethlehem, the sign is that they're gonna find a baby that's wrapped in cloth and is lying in a manger. And so they're traveling into Bethlehem. They find a manger. Who do they find? They find Mary and Joseph in the manger and boom, there's Jesus, baby Jesus that's in the manger. They report to Mary and Joseph what the angel has told them. And the group is amazed and astonished. Everybody that's with Mary and Joseph, they hear this news that the shepherd bring to the whole group and they're just blown away. Like, oh my goodness, it happened again. Like an angel appeared and he reported all that's going on, all that's happened in our life. He's reported it again. And we have another group that's coming, is clarifying, is bringing all this news to us. And this, this group of shepherds, they leave baby Jesus as they leave the manger, as they leave Mary and Joseph. What the Bible tells us is the shepherds leave praising and glorifying God for all that they've seen and heard. It's just an unforgettable scene, right? I mean, we, it's iconic, We have this scene, you have mangers. You have the nativity set that's in your house right now. This is just kind of a replica of this whole entire scene. It's just iconic. But what sums up the whole of Christmas in this story is sandwiched in between the angel's report and the shepherd's visit to Mary and Joseph. A host of angels appears to the shepherds and they sing a song, just two lines. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. So look, if you're looking for the message of Christmas summed up in just a couple of lines, the message of Advent summed up in a couple of lines, this is it. This is sort of the clarifying focus for us of the Advent and Christmas season. God receives glory and we receive peace. So here's what I want to do, all right? So the next 20-ish minutes, 15, 20 minutes. I just want to unpack these two lines. I want to wrestle with, I want to sit with, I want to unpack these two lines and consider why Christmas is all about God's glory and us receiving peace, all right? So first, let's consider how Christmas is all about God's glory. So the first, two, the first line is glory to God in the highest heavens, You see this reinforces the shepherds leave Mary and Joseph in the manger because they leave glorifying and praising God for all the things they have seen and heard, all right? So what's glorious about the birth narrative of Jesus? What's what's so glorious about this, right? Like there's not, you don't have important people that are involved in this. You have a peasant girl and you have shepherds. You don't have pageantry that's going on with the birth of Jesus, I mean, he goes to a manger. As he's born, he's literally surrounded by farm animals. That's not glorious. You also have, you don't have luxurious spaces. It's not like they get to go to the castle immediately after he's born. No, like they have to flee. They flee their own home. They go, they're refugees. They leave their own, their hometown. None of this communicates glory. So why would the, the host of angels come and, 
and sing about the glory of God with this birth of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, and all of the unspectacular. That's not a world, but I'm making up right now. All the unspectacularness that's going on, like, how is this glorious? I, I think that's the point. See, the point here is that God has stripped down the birth of Christ from everything extravagant to show us that the coming of Jesus is what is really glorious. It's Jesus that makes this whole event, this whole season glorious. It's not the pageantry. It's not important people. It's not luxurious places. It's Jesus. There's this uh, photography trick, this technique that you can use called bokeh. Now, if you haven't seen it, you don't know what this word is, you've seen it put into action. It's basically like the portrait mode on your iPhone, all right? So what happens here is the object of the picture is in focus and the background is blurred. And the reason we do this is we want to accentuate what the subject of the picture is. So here's, here's this whole thing in action, all right? So this is my third child, Sawyer. We just had family pictures. We had each of our kids get their own little portraits done while they were there. And so you see Sawyer, he's in focus, right? He's in focus in the middle of the picture and everything else in the background is blurred. See, what God is doing here with this scene, because nothing is spectacular that's surrounded in the birth story of Jesus. What God is doing, he's accentuating Jesus in that whole entire Christmas narrative because he's removed everything else by the world standards that would be glorious. There's nothing spectacular about what's going on in the birth stories of Jesus outside of Jesus himself. And the reason that God does this is because he's trying to bring into focus who Jesus is and what he's come to do and what we need him for with everything else in the background being blurred. You understand? Like You tracking with me? So look, here's what we seem to do with these birth narratives, these stories, right? So the stories and the birth narrative of Jesus, like if you recall them, you have the angel that comes to Zechariah and Zechariah hears that they're gonna have a baby. They're well along in years, they're past the child rearing years, but the angel comes and says, no, you're gonna have a boy. He doesn't believe him, he goes mute, he goes back, he reports to his wife. What happens? They get pregnant, they're having a baby. Then you have Mary. You have this virgin girl that's a teenager that's going to be wed to a man but hasn't been wed yet. An angel appears to her and says, hey, I'm putting a, a baby in your belly. And by the way, it's going to be the Messiah of the whole world. And what's her response like? How do I know this is going to be true? You have like this thing that's going on. And then you have the shepherds in our story that they have the angel appears. You have a host of angels literally coming and singing about the glory of, of God to them. They're the people that are the lowest of classes in all of society, but God comes and shows up to them. And here's the conclusions that we jump to, right? If God did that for Zachariah and Elizabeth, if he put a baby in their belly when they're past their child rearing years, Maybe he can do something spectacular in my life. Or you have Mary. If God can use a person like Mary, a peasant girl like Mary, then maybe he can use me. Or you go to the, the story that we're in tonight. If God appears to people like shepherds, then maybe there's a chance for me to meet with God as, as well. These are the conclusions that we jump to with these narratives. And all these are right. And all these are true, but in the grand, scheme of, the grand scheme of things, they're the blurred background. 
They're the blurred background of all of Christmas. The purpose of these accounts is to accentuate God and what he is doing in this world as the subject in the portrait of Christmas. Christmas is first about God and then us. But oftentimes we try to reverse the order of these things. What should really grab our attention is the responses in every single one of these stories. That's what should be jumping out at us because every single one of them, it's a worshipful experience. I have three of them. I have three verses on here for you. You can read them along with me. All right, so Elizabeth, here's everything that's happened with Zachariah. She's pregnant with a baby. And what does she say? The Lord has done this for me. Then you have Mary Upon the hearing of the news that she's going to have a baby, the Messiah of the world, she goes and visits Elizabeth. The baby jumps inside of Elizabeth's tummy. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. She says, you are blessed beyond all women. What's Mary's response? She goes and writes a song, and these are the opening words. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Then you have the shepherds. The host of angels come, they sing, they've heard about the report of the Messiah of the world that's been born. They go and see it with their own eyes. They report everything to Mary and Joseph of what they've heard from this host of angels. Mary and Joseph, their minds are blown again by what God is doing in their life. And what happens with the shepherds as they leave? They leave glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard. Why is this the response? Because Christmas is about the glory, God receiving the glory that he deserves. This is the first important thing that we see about the whole entire Christmas story. So look, as we enter into the week of Christ, his birth, as we remember his first coming, consider doing this with me, all right? So I have no doubt that you're probably gonna have your Bible open this week and you're probably gonna be reading these accounts. Whether it's with your kids or whether it's in your own personal devotion time or maybe even at your discipleship group, you're gonna read through these stories this week. And as you do it, let's do it with the lens of, of reading through it, thinking about God first and then us second. Instead of jumping to these conclusions where we think about what God can do for us, read it through the lens where you can see the glory magnified through these birth narratives. So as you read through the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, look for the themes of God's faithfulness. He's faithful to his promises. This communicates something about God to us before it tells us things about what he can do for us. It communicates about God's sovereignty, about he's the one, how he's the one that's ultimately in control. As you read through the birth narrative, or as you read through the story of Mary, think about God's power, about how he overcomes her own virginity status and he places a, a baby in her tummy. Think about how God is holy. Literally one of the attributes that she writes in the whole entire song that is her response to everything that's happened to her. How God is wholly different from anybody that we could ever experience in this life. Think about the shepherds. Think about God's grace. About how he comes and he 
overcomes our lowliness to come and interfere our life, interrupt our life and communicate and be with us and how God is all knowing. He knows the plans that are happening. He communicates them. He invites us into them. These speak things about God and the glory of Christmas that we need to pay attention to. This is the subject of the photo. Everything else is blurred in the background. And then let these truths seep down into your heart. Like, let them seep down and let them communicate about who God is and that he is a relational God. Let them move you to worship. Let them be the themes of your prayers this week as you read these stories. Share what moves you with your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, whoever's coming through your house this week, right? or whoever's house you're going through, like whatever God communicates to you in these birth narratives, like share them. That's a worshipful response. This is the appropriate response to Christmas because we see it's the response that every story shares with us about how people respond to the goodness of what God has done in their life. We give God the glory that he deserves. The first thing that Christmas is about is that God receives glory. The second thing is that we receive peace. It's the second line, peace on earth to people he favors. So let's remind ourselves what peace means in the Bible, right? We have, we have ideas about peace from what we think about in our everyday society. Bible speaks a little bit different. So it's not a combination of tranquility and prosperity or a trouble-free life. A lot of times we hear peace and we jump immediately to think about relaxation, right? About a quiet home in the midst of the chaos. We think about like a quiet home or maybe we think about like retreating and getting away. And so you're sitting poolside with like a drink in your hand and the sun beating down on your body and you have like the cool water that you can go jump into and like everything's quiet, everything's calm, everything's peaceful, right? This is what we think about But that's not what the Bible speaks about when it comes to peace. Peace in the Bible is the end of enmity. I can't say this word very very well. So enmity and warfare. Enmity and warfare. And in the Bible, the most important peace for us is the peace of God. That we are at peace with God. So in many ways, when we read the Bible, it's sort of like a mirror to us. When we read the Bible, it tells us things about ourselves that we wouldn't see without us looking at the Bible and seeing us in the mirror and the reflection of what the Bible communicates to us about ourselves. And when we look in the mirror of the Bible, one of the things that it reflects back to us is that there's a lust for authority in our life. Tim Keller puts it like this. We are committed to the idea that the only way we will be happy is if we are wholly in charge of our lives. Every single one of us feels this, right? I mean, if you're a good American, you feel this. You know what I'm saying? Like, any time that your boss walks into the office and says, here's what I want, and like hasn't like given you any other warning about like what is about to happen or the thoughts that are running through his head, immediately like what's the idea that, like who do you think you are walking into my office and then barking orders at me like this, right? Like we, we don't like it. We need someone to like 
kind of give us a buffer before we kind of jump immediately into that. We don't like people coming and telling us and speaking directly to us and exerting authority over us. We think that if we are a people that are free, that we can do and think and say and act however we want without any authority that's coming over us. This is the, but this is the disposition that leads to hostility between us and God. Romans 8, 7 through 8 says this, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, look, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now look, as I read this, you're probably having this sense of relief. Some of us may have a sense of relief in here because we're like, well, that's not me. I'm, I'm generally a good person, Right? Like, I'm generally a good person. And so, like, what that says in Romans chapter eight, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's, some people deal with that, but like, that's not where I'm at, right? But what we need to realize is that there's more than one way to express hostility in our relationship with God. See, we immediately kind of think the person that's like, I'm just going to go live and do and be any way that I want to. And like, that's the hostility that we have in our minds. But we're like, no, 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 like, I, no, I, I try to obey God's law. Like, I try to obey the commands that God has given us in his word. I, I try to be obedient in my life. And that's the other type of hostility. See, because here's what happens. We express this hostility towards God in this way. We say, I'll obey God, the Bible and God's commands, and then God has to love me and bless me and accept me. Tim Keller, again, says this is an effort to control God, not to trust him. See, here's, here's what happens. When we live to obey God in order to dictate how he treats us, we manipulate. Manipulation is a form of control. It's exerting authority over the one who really has the authority in the relationship. Rather than depending upon him, look, this is what happens if, you're, if this is you, like you're depending on yourself, you're your own savior. And so this too is hostile to God. They both, the, the mindset, the life that's like, I'm just gonna go and do whatever I want, like that's hostile to God, yes. But the lifestyle that also says like, no, I'm gonna be obedient, I'm gonna do what God says, I'm gonna follow his rules, and then he's gonna have to owe me. If I do what he says, then he has to love me. He has to accept me. I have to be a person that he lets into the heavens after I die. That is hostility to God as well. And so look, if that's you, like you need the good news of Christmas. Because the good news of Christmas is that though we are hostile towards God, there is an end to our hostility. That we can have peace with God. So consider this with me. If you look at the stories around the birth of Jesus, there's this theme of weakness that we see in all the birth narratives. So God does for others what they could not do for themselves. We've kind of rehearsed this already, but stick with me, all right? So God defeats the barrenness of Elizabeth, right? God overcomes the virginity of Mary. God overlooks the lowliness of the shepherds. This theme of weakness communicates to us just how needy we are of this child that was just born. See, Christmas reveals that our greatest need, which is peace with God, can be met in this newborn baby that's lying in a manger. 
This child will give us peace. You see this later by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter five. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why can this baby give us peace? Why isn't it our work and our labor that we do that can earn, our fa- earn favor with God, earn peace with God? Why is it that this baby, this one baby can bring peace? Well, it's because the hostility that you and I have experienced in our relationship with God, Jesus never had to because he's perfectly sinless. Jesus lived in perfect relationship with God, not just for a little bit, not just for a week, not just for a month, not just for like a whole year. His whole entire life is marked with perfection and lacking in hostility and perfect peace and union with his father who is in heaven. And it's because Jesus lived the perfect perfect relationship with God that he had and it lacked any hostility that he could die for our hostility, which is exactly what he did. Because later in Romans chapter five, this is what Paul says. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Look at this. For if, while we were enemies, that's hostility. For if, while we were still hostile towards God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? So look, this should beg the question inside of you, well, then how do I receive this peace? How do I receive the peace that this baby supposedly is to bring to me, the second thing that Christmas is all about? Well, there's a a picture that I think just puts it so well. You've probably seen this on social media, right? This is Mary consoling Eve. So what this picture personifies for us what it instructs to us is both the posture and the response that we are to have to the birth of this baby Jesus. So you see Eve on the left, right? Heads down. You can tell that there's mourning in her life. Just placing her hand on the baby, on the tummy of Mary where the baby resides what this personifies to us is that she's one embraced her weakness, but also trusts completely in the baby that's in that baby, in that tummy. She embraces the weakness that she understands that her actions have created hostility in her relationship with God, right? I mean, the snake that you see around the ankle that's under the foot of Mary, what's that communicating? It's communicating the fall. The first action where the authority of God that's over the life of Adam and Eve is completely rejected in the garden, right? The very thing that you and I experience in this life, like that's what's going on in this picture. But Eve understands her actions and it brings a sorrowfulness. She embraces her weakness. She admits that all the bad things that she's done, but also the good things that she's expressed, self-reliance in her life, she lays all those down. She comes to the realization that you need someone else to save you, to bring you peace, that there's nothing, there's no working, there's no earning that can happen in your life. You have to embrace your weakness. But then secondly, there's complete trust. Trust that this child can do for her what she could not do for herself. And that's the appropriate response for us too. 
Listen, if you want to receive this peace, if you want to live in this peace, it's embracing the weakness that we see in all the birth narratives, understanding that's communicating something to us about us, that we embrace our weakness, but then also the response that you see in every single one of these stories that they're looking at this baby Jesus and completely trusting in this baby that what has been communicated about this baby is true, that it's the Messiah of the world. And then that we see this lived out in his life that he, because he's perfect in his relationship with God, can go and stand in our place and die in our place and bring the full hope that you and I need, that we can have peace with God. He does it for us because he is our hostility. And the perfect relationship that he had is now ours, ending all the all the hostility that was in our relationship with him. We now get the peace that he lived with in his life now, but it's ours for all eternity. That's the good news of Christmas. So look, if you want to boil down, what is Christmas all about? Is that longing? Is it hope? Is it joy? Is it love? Is it light? Like, what is it? If you boil it all down, it's this, that God receives glory And then we receive peace. And it's all at the hands of this baby Jesus. So let me try to put a bow on Advent for us, all right? So you have all these different things, all these different thoughts. We've tried to bring clarity tonight. The theme of here was peace. But look, there's a song out there by Isaac Wardell that was written in 2009 that I think just pieces all of this together. So let me just read this for us. I'm not gonna try to sing it because you don't want me to do that. Here's Advent, here's Christmas, friends. Under the baby's head she held, love, love, sing Emmanuel, God here with us. Lending at his birth, peace on all the earth. See his mother Mary weeping, love, 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 that's her, her song, right? Over the shepherds, angels tell, joy, joy, call the Manuel, born in Bethlehem, goodwill unto men, before, bend before his cradle, singing joy, joy, joy. Down from the throne of heaven he fell, light, light became Emmanuel, covered in our flesh, swaddled in our dress, Wise men see his coming, chasing light, light, light. And onto the ground his blood he spilled. Look, peace, peace, cried Emmanuel. Sinners dark and vile, God to reconcile hostility and then peace here. Spilling love and joy and light and what? Peace, peace. Peace. Friends, may Christmas move us to worship God, to have the same response that we saw from the shepherds here, that they leave glorifying and praising God and then receive the peace that we so desperately need by this baby that was born in a manger. It's the subject, center focus of the, of the portrait of Christmas with everything else being blurred in the background. Let's pray. Let's pray.